0: Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Conceive. Believe. Are you
1: tuned in. Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. Today's guest is James Swagger, author of the Newgrange Sirius Mystery linking passage grave cosmology with Dogon symbology. While many people are aware of the solar and lunar alignments and the ceremonial functions of passage graves, there is also a hidden, deeper meaning to many of these sites. They are not intentionally disguised, but rather a complex, intricate system of astronomy is employed at each site. When broken down and analysed, it seems quite clear. In fact, we have a definite line of research into these ancient monuments, like no other archaeological field. James has travelled all over Europe and has been to three quarters of the 100-plus passage grave sites in Ireland in his quest for explanations of their cosmology. James, how are you?
2: Hey, you doing, John? Good to
1: be on the show. And it's great to have you because you, well, I mean, you're a guy who's going to open up a brand new world to us and to all the listeners because we're going to talk about Newgrange serious and anything with the word mystery in the title has got to be interesting but before we delve into it give us a bit about your background where you come from and how you got from where you were to where you are now
2: sure um i actually come from a science and engineering background Uh, most of my career i've actually worked in heavy industrial control and automation information processing Uh, typical jobs would be oil rigs power plants wind farms water treatments um, I hold two master's degrees, one in engineering and one in science, research and society, which is my most recent one. Um, and uh, like most people in Ireland or Northern Ireland, I've traveled for work. Um, if, I think Ireland's quite an educated race, but we actually export our best educated people because there ain't enough jobs here for us. Uh, so I traveled most of Europe. Uh, my mother's Danish. Um, and I had an offer to go over there and... Uh, off I traveled when I was 18 and came back studied a little bit back in Northern Ireland and Queens uh back over to Denmark again and um it's also another megalithic hotspot and uh so yeah I'd asked Seth the question of these passage graves appear in in Denmark and uh they're also in Ireland and of course that was that was just a little opener for me and uh I realized that we had lost a megalithic civilization and uh, it had appealed to me as a mystery to it, to it, to encourage myself to to study into it and I'd been based in the UK for about 10 years uh, for my career and um, so yeah I'd always sought out the megalithic civilization in, in the British Isles, mostly Britain at that time. I'd been up as far as Scotland, down as far as Cornwall. Um, I'd also traveled across to Carnac. Uh, I lived in Plymouth at the time. There's a good little ferry service over to Brittany and uh I traversed the Karna quite a few times and uh, I really started to feed my my brain on the megalithic civilization and really kind of get a good uh, instill the information and I guess uh, it was more of a mystery to me and not enough uh, insight and um, I'd returned to Ireland after probably about a 10 year absence and... uh, I was, uh, uh, bringing a friend of mine, an Australian, and, uh, he'd been to New Grange before, and I said to, uh, I said to him, well, I know another one not too far around the corner, which is called Dove's Passage Grave, um, which I go into in the book also, uh, and, uh, I seen some constellation rock art uh, signifying the Pleiades constellation on the western side of the mound. Now, I had seen this rock art before, but I'd never thought anything about it. The last time I'd seen it was probably about 20, and, uh, I was a bit of a young pup at the time. I had no serious interest in anything. I'd just go around and just kind of have a little look at things and wouldn't have any deep meaning for it. But uh, this time I had a different skill set. I'd, I'd read a lot when I was away. I'd probably got into the subject of uh, archaeoastronomy from the likes of Robert Boval. He opened up the door for people uh, with regards to uh, the pyramids of Giza and their the Orion con- uh, correlation theory. Um and um, for those that don't really know what archaeoastronomy is, it's just a mongrel science of archaeology and astronomy, uh, with also a little bit of cultural and mythology mixed in with it. Um, so I went and I researched the constellation Rockhart again, and I I just the light switched on for me that there was a there wasn't a lot about this in terms of archaeoastronomy. had um, mm. a different skill set, at a different mindset, and uh, it was it was it was kind of stunned myself that there was stuff there to look at and. I ended up uh, going to a few other sites for uh, personal interest again. Um, of course, I'd been absent out of Ireland for a long time, so I'd seen a lot of the megalithic civilization in Europe, and i just kind of come home again, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd actually uh, wrote some articles for Historical Histories magazine uh, in Ireland, which doesn't run anymore, but I, uh, I did actually have the intention of writing a book. And um, I was going to write a chapter on megalithic civilization in the book, uh, um, and just from historical mysteries, which was always an interest of mine. Yeah. Little did I know I was going to discover so much stuff that I actually ended up with a book on the megalithic civilization. And I actually ceased writing the book on historical mysteries about two years ago to do the megalithic research. Um, I went off on a tangent totally, and the book's still on the shelf, half wrote. So I do hope to go back to that at some point. So. That's kind of how I got in. So I kind of got suckered into the megalithic civilization back in Ireland again. I, I come full circle as such. But I, in in saying that, John, I actually had discovered some some rock art uh, up in uh, Donegal in a place called Ardmore. And right. What what really switched on for me there was it wasn't on record as being deciphered. First of all,
1: okay. Uh,
2: it, rep- it represents the. Uh, the constellations of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, more commonly known as the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper, or the Big Saucepan and the Little Saucepan, or the Big Plough and the Little Plough, there's many names for them. The Big Bear and the Little Bear is another one. And uh, it, of course, you can uh, you can wind back the stars now on on very advanced computer programs uh, for astronomy, uh, planetarium software. Uh, most common one that's free and open to use is Stellarium. Um, but there's many ones like Starry Night Pro, and you basically, you open up the program, you plug in your GPS coordinates of where you are, or your city, or your street, and uh, you put your date and time, um, and you can just see what the stars look like, yeah? You can see what the stars look like in three months from now, or you can go back three months, you can go back to 3000 BC. Um, so, you know, that's that that's would be the main tool of archaeoastronomy, um, that you would use if you want to look at like the skies. And there's a reason for that. Uh, I should probably explain what, uh, the, re- the reason behind the stars changing so long over time mm-hmm. for the non-astronomers. A, we have three motions of the Earth. One is the, the daily motion of night and day. The second one would be the yearly motion going around the, the sun. But we have another motion that people aren't aware of, uh, unless you're in astronomy, and that's called precession of the equinoxes. Um, basically... We're standing on the earth and we look up at the stars um, and over 26,000 years, uh, there's a wobble in the earth. Now, 26,000 years is a very long time for the earth to be wobbling. It's basically like a spinning top, John. Yeah. Yeah. So precession of the equinoxes has the effect that if we stand on the earth, look up at the stars, there's going to be a wobble that takes 26,000 years for one complete wobble. And, and the effect is basically the stars will shift one degree every 72 years.
1: Yeah. Okay, and it's a precession as opposed to procession. Yeah,
2: precession, yeah. and precession, the reason they yeah. call that if you were standing on the equator and you looked at the zodiac of all the everybody knows their star sign and they have their constellation of Gemini, Cancer, Leo, and mm-hmm. um, you would see the constellations precessed as in go backwards around the equator, and that's the effect of that's the effect of the wobble. Right. So I get that, you. that's where the term precession of the equinoxes come from. But for all intents and purposes, the the effect is that the stars will shift to one degree every 72 years. So, if you uh, look on the horizon today, um, you'll pick a constellation, you look at it, and this time next year you look at it, it will shift a little bit, but you won't notice it. It'll take 72 years looking on that uh, point on the horizon year after year until you'll see it shift one degree. So, right. So it's, it's, it's just getting past that. That's, that's why the stars all shift and change over so much time. So in saying that, uh, Newgrange is famous for its most uh, common alignment is of the, the winter solstice sunrise on, on the morning. Uh, 15 minutes of uh, the 21st of December in the morning time, it will penetrate the passage and uh, it takes a year for it to repeat again. It's famous the world over for this uh, this solar event, but it's it's quite a novelty in terms of modern and our modern age because these monuments are very complex things. uh, They were aligned to stars. They had calculations of the moon. It wasn't just a solar event penetrating the passage, and that's what they're most famous for. It's Mm -hmm. probably the only thing they're famous for, to be honest. Um, But there is some other deep underlying. uh, Possibly hidden, but for no particular reason, it's just hidden because the astronomy is advanced, and it's you need to be averse in astronomy to have a little look inside these and see what's actually going on. Um, perhaps I should explain Newgrange for the for the listeners exactly what Newgrange is and what a passage grave is and where it sits on the horizon up there. Absolutely, yeah. By all means, go for it. Right. So Newgrange is a passage grave, and the the, the term passage grave is a bit of a misnomer because it's, uh, it just implies a burial function, but uh, Newgrange passage grave uh, is basically an observational platform where they looked at the skies and the heavens. Um, passage grave is typically a, an earth and rock mound um, with large curb stones with a passageway that uh, runs mostly into the centre of the mound and has a chamber inside. Right and Typically, inside the chamber, there's ceremonial bowls where the cremated dead would be placed, um, which most people think on the winter solstice so that the sun would take their souls away. And that's, the, that's the popular belief of what they were doing. Um, but it's not the only type of passage grave. There's, a, there's slightly different variations all across the country and across Western Europe. Um, beside Newgrange, you also have another one called Note and another one called Doth. Um, and they're slightly different layouts. Uh, Note has an eastern and a western passage um, taking in uh, the autumn and spring equinox. Uh, Doth has the winter solstice sunset as opposed to Newgrange having the winter solstice sunrise, Um, and it's got different art there, and it's different heights and different kind of layout. So I should say Note has uh, 18 small satellite mounds uh, situated around it. So it's kind of clustered as well. So you don't see the same running theme at all, these, John. uh, Each one's got the same basic concept but slightly different um, layout and
1: structure. And why, James, why did the ancients, um, why were they so fascinated with the skies and astrology and the stars?
2: Yeah, I mean... That's, that's the biggest question of all, because we, we don't know who built these things. So we have to peer back and look at what they did. Right. And what we find is that they have this skill set of looking at the stars. And then, we, of course, that's the most obvious question. What, what were they doing? What were they looking at the stars? What were they about? And that's what we have to do is kind of psychologically profile these people and understand how they lived, what they did, because that's that's the only way we're gonna answer who these people were. We have to actually profile who they were. And the best way we have to do that is to look at what they did. And the biggest thing they left us was astronomy. Now the astronomy that they did, John, is given the name observational astronomy. And basically that means you look with your naked eye above at the heavens and watch for cycles.
1: Okay. And
2: we, well, we obviously, we have telescopes, and we look deeper into space now, and, and that's what the term astronomy means. But that's how, that's how astronomy was done back in 3000 BC. Um, and you'd be very surprised, John, what you can actually find out from using observational astronomy. An example is, if you observe the sun on the horizon, for, for starters, yeah, the most basic motion to understand is the sun.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You would see the sun rise in the east, set in the west, and uh, that's on the autumn equinox and the spring equinox. Uh, it's different for summertime and it's different for wintertime. So it would have a, a most easterly point and a most westerly point on the horizon. And then on the summer solstice, it would rise on the longest day of the year, it would rise at a certain point. And you might be able to find out where that was. And um, there's evidence then that they did that. They They seemed to hammer out exactly when the winter solstice was and when the summer solstice was and when these equinox days. So that's four points of the year. They broke down their solar year into four quarters. So, I mean, that's, that may seem obvious to people, but that's, that's, that's the first lesson of an observational astronomy. Um, it's finding out a cycle of the sun by just observing over long periods of time and watching for differences and watching for similarities. Then you have to understand that these guys knew an awful lot of information about the complex cycles of the moon. Now, for those non-astronomers out there, the moon is a very sophisticated motion. It, it mostly goes around the equator, but it's got a, we've got a tilt on the earth as well. And then it's got two types of lunar month. There's the sidereal lunar month and the, and the synodic lunar month, um, which they both knew about. Uh, in, at note, there's evidence that they knew that they both types of lunar months. Um, I'll spare the details of the astronomical knowledge first of all. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's the, other complex cycles like the metonic cycle, which basically means every 19 years that the moon's going to come back to its full cycle. And basically 19 solar years is, is equal to so many lunar months. Yeah. And, the, and it's to within a couple of decimal points. So, yeah, there's this metonic cycle. And they obviously knew about that as well because they were obsessed with the number 19 at North. And everything they counted was like a lunar calculation. So. It's really quite fascinating when you just get into solar and lunar. And uh, in mainstream archaeology they they tend to leave that up to other researchers. Um, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much accepted with the with the solar phenomenon that acute the solar phenomenon that occurs at Newgrange. It's really uh it's really just a given that the solar thing was monitored. Uh, pe- some people you're allowed to go into lunar activity and kind of make a cue prepositions about that but after that um most most people don't know anything about them Not like, yeah there's not a lot of research being done yeah so uh i was i was i was compiling research for the book and uh of course new is the is the megalithic hotspot in ireland for uh, passage graves it's like a spokesperson for every passage grave out there and <laughs> um, western europe and all like it's probably the most famous passage grave there is um and there's a reason for that. And Newgrange Complex is considered the most uh, complex megalithic site in the world. Um, there's an awful lot of rock art at, at North and at Newgrange. Something like 40% of all the rock art in the whole of Europe is at that site, Empty two sites. And, and that alone is astounding. So uh, a lot of research has just come to Newgrange and notes and... They just kind of get stuck in them and they just that's that's where everybody gets seems to get attracted to in the limelight but i just thought that you know if you're going to do a thorough research you've got to go and see the other passage graves in ireland so there's two other famous cemeteries i'm not sure if you're actually aware of uh john there's uh the lock crew cemetery complex of passage graves in, in county meath i'm not no no and there's another one called Carol keel and sligo yeah i've heard of caro keel yeah yeah well uh Carol Keel's quite unique and quite different. I'll start with that first because that's where things really opened up for me on the research. Personally, John, I didn't know what I was going to find. I was just kind of jumping straight in again, and I was finding out some little links through astronomy and applying some of my science and research that I qualified myself to do. So um, it, was, it was it was a bit of fun for me at the start, but it's it become quite an academic research project for me. And uh, Carol Keel's quite different because. Uh, And in a good way, because there's only one monument there that really opens up to possibly two that opens up to solar and lunar activity. And the reason being all the rest of the other monuments are aligned to pretty much close to north. Um, So it could be a few degrees from north or a few degrees after north, but pretty much to a narrow band, there's a a lot of these passage graves aligned to close to due north. now the sun rises and and sets in due east and due west on the on the autumn and spring. Uh, the closest it gets to north is about northeast and northwest on the sunrise and sunset. So this automatically rules out the sun and it automatically rules out the the lunar activity. Then the the, the mind boggles and it goes, well, what were they looking at? Mm. Um, so I realised, well, it, it doesn't leave very much It's the stars or a constellation. So. Um, I applied my, uh, my my astronomy program, and you can wind, What you do is you wind the stars back to uh, um three thousand five hundred BC, and uh, I developed a thing called the uh, Caro Keel Cassiopeia theory. Um, Cassiopeia is a constellation. There, uh, it looks like a wonky W. I call it. Um, there's five stars, and if you can think of where you would draw a W, uh, each point is a is a star. So right. Um you've got five cairns or passage graves up there aligned to each star of Cassiopeia to within like one degree of accuracy, um, which then is kind of phenomenal because this correlation only happens at exactly 3,500 BC um, due to this effective precession of the equinoxes, And that also fits in beautifully when these things were expected to be built. Um Caracal is quite different as well. And, to the other ones in uh certainly note because a Newgrange because there's no major mound up there they all look about the same size and it's quite disorientating when you're in Carl keel cemetery complex because they all look the same and the landscape all looks the same and they're at something like 300 meters above sea level um so it's quite daunting when you're up there and you have a plan of all these passage graves which one is which and where you're looking at and um so yeah, that's when the astronomy really kicked in, and I realised that these guys really had what I call a passage grade cosmology, and uh, it was quite advanced. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 quite a, a daunting uh, subject to jump into to try to explain to people. But uh, in the book, I've I've tried to lay it out in in three sections, and uh, the first one was the given alignments that it was the, get the maps, the plans out get the given alignments uh, compile the data for that's accepted by everyone um, the middle section then I, I jumped into a bit of rock art mostly constellations to show that people w- they were looking at constellations and a couple of the new discoveries that I had um, but also to show that people that they were looking at looking at the stars as well which most people don't look into it's it's not accepted like it's not a generally accepted theory yet anyway mm. um, and also some of the lunar rock art at notes um, and then towards the end of the book, I've there's four uh, there's four theories that are mine, and then two other theories belonging to other people that I've slightly tweaked a little bit, but uh, the theories then compile exactly uh, what I what I've kind of discovered in the book and put some stuff together. So that was the general layout of the book, and uh, I've I've done a lot of I've put like sixty four images in to explain for people in terms of passage grave plans, past pictures of passage graves and computer simulations. So it's quite an enthralling read, and and you don't have to be very adverse in astronomy to do it. So, that was the main
1: idea of the book. And um, there's something I want to touch on because uh, when when Newgrange, I suppose, was uh, was excavated properly and rebuilt, um, yeah. a, a team headed by Michael J O'Kelly, I believe.
2: Yeah, that's the, a good point. Now I, I'm listening. Go on.
1: Yeah, there there is a theory that uh, you mentioned rock art, and there is a huge amount of rock art there. But there's a theory that it was deliberately. Rebuilt slightly incorrectly to hide some of the secrets, I suppose, that, uh, that Newgrange holds.
2: First and foremost, I mean, it gets a lot of criticism. I mean, some people get quite irate that they, uh, they did that. I mean, it, some of the other less known cairns and Paschapeas of Ireland, uh, they, they pretty much were accepted that they were pointed like a pyramid or topped. You topped with, like, they piled stones on top of each other till they got to a point, mm. yeah, which would naturally yeah. be in a point if you kept piling stones up on top of each other. And they topped them all with white quartz. And uh, the problem with Newgrange is all this, the, the point had slipped off it and all the, all the material was slippage. Now, the, what they rebuilt that white face or white wall with was actually just material they found on the site. But a lot of people now realise... The mistake that they made, and it was most likely a white pointed carn uh, pyramidic shape. Um, and uh, you got to understand Newgrange, when they for thousands of years was literally covered over and sealed with the slippage. Uh, and the, I think it was 1699, a farmer was digging up some of the curbstones in the Great Circle hmm. uh, for some building materials for to put a road on, <laughs> to, onto his lands. They just happened to dig the entrance out. Um but for so it's only been in uh in our modern uh viewpoint for the last what three hundred three hundred years or so. Um and it was in the nineteen sixties that Michael o. J. O. Kelly, he yeah, I, I don't know why he actually I don't know why he decided to put that up or how he got that sanctioned really, that that wall. I mean they had to put a concrete wall into uh they had to put a concrete wall into hold that white quartz facade up and uh yeah, I mean, there is stuff hidden in behind it. Um, you know, it's, it's just a shame that they they seem to got away with doing that. Really, like, uh, I mean, get enough still get a lot of criticism today, John. Like, um, so yeah, um, I should say that the the materials to build Newgrange came from quite far away as well. You probably heard that on the tour yourself, yeah, John. Yeah. Um the quartz actually comes from the Wicklow Mountains, forty miles to the south. Uh, the grey cobblestones that they used on the quartz wall as well, they came 20 miles to the north uh, in Clotterhead, not far from the town of New York, I suppose.
1: And that's pretty uh, incredible in itself when you consider the, I suppose, the difficulty of transporting. So is there any theory as to why they would have specifically sought out um, sto- stone from so far
2: away? This is what they don't tell you on the tour, John. That's a good point. Uh, they, I think the grey, wacky curbstones came from the nearest source 10 miles away as well. They were the big, giant curbstones, a couple of tonnes each. Yeah. But what they don't tell you is, they make you kind of... They kind of lead you to believe that um, there was a research community going out looking for materials. right? They leave it, they leave, just leave it open like that. And you would naturally assume that these guys went out looking for materials to build their little monuments. But that's not the case, because where each of these places where they got the materials from There's passage graves there as well in the Wicklow mountains i've been there quite recently there's a place called Seafin hill it's just on the border of the Dublin and Wicklow mountains uh, wouldn't be far from uh, uh, Tibraden uh, peak uh, between t- there's a there's a passage grave on Tibbraddon which is in Dublin and then there's another passage grave in Wicklow mountains uh, called Seafin hill um, that's S E E F I N. Um Seafin Hill is something like six hundred and thirty-seven meters above sea level, like about eighteen hundred feet or something. It's on a military firing range. Um and you can only go and visit it when the red flag's down, so it's it doesn't get a lot of people visit it. But inside the passageway they have quartz uh, along the walls, yeah? And this is where the this is where the quartz came from to build new but they don't tell you that. So up to the north, you have Sleeve Gullion Passage Grave. It's the highest passage grave in Ireland, and that's not far from where the uh, the grey cobblestones come from. So all across the northeast and northwest of Ireland, there is a barrage of passage graves. And, uh, you know, they, they, they knew where the materials are at because they were building at those places as well. Mm. But it uh, just don't seem to tell you that on the tour. They just want to get people shuffled in and shuffled out. And. I don't think they're doing a good service to the monuments for what they represent really that's my personal uh perspective on it John right uh, but uh you know the archaeology they don't delve into astronomy it's not their science that's fair enough uh, it's they they're concentrated on their on their on their um, perspective and, and that's what they're about but they do hold the keys to the monuments and they do say what what happens at them and you know so there's kind of a barrier there for any research to be done especially at Newgrange and North um but uh I should also say a little bit about lock Crew. where uh, lock Crew also has a, a solstice event it's uh it's about 40 kilometers to the west of uh Newgrange it's still in County Mead but it's quite close to the cabin border mm-hmm. um and when you 're on top of Loch Crewe, you can see one third of Ireland from that spot alone, um, which is quite quite uh, dramatic uh, yeah that 's amazing yeah, I mean, I should also say Sleeve Gullion and Aramahgh, where I was telling you about you can I, you could possibly see a third of Ireland from that point as well you 've got the low plains of Dundalk below you and uh, loud you 've also got Dundalk Bay, you can see as far as Wicklow. Um, uh the Wicklow Mountains to the south, 60 miles away. You can see uh Schlieve Bloom uh to the west in uh in Leitrim. You can see uh Loch Ney behind you, Carlingford Loch. Um so the places where they chose these higher ones were absolutely dramatic. I mean they could they could see for miles like Um I often also wonder um when they had their ceremonial. Uh, Burials—they obviously had to have funeral fires to cremate their dead. And um, outside these, so them fires—the fire to to burn a body and cremate it has to be very intense. I don't know if you know that. It would it would need to be massive logs and and the, uh, like a funeral pyre lot.
0: Okay. Um,
2: to do it like in an old school way, I'm talking about. Uh, I mean, you would have to chop down several trees to do that lot. Um, so these fires would have been seen for a long distance, and if if all these passage graves were on a line of sight they would have known that a member of the community had died and something i actually i only thought of in retrospect after writing the book uh when i was thinking about the actual ceremonial and the burial function something i haven't concentrated on too much in the book um i've more gone down the astronomy route so yeah it's 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 kind of funny that they just seem to concentrate on these things as as the passage graves only and uh I guess uh, archaeology, they only seem to concern themselves with the head headcount, what they, what they call the head count, of passage graves. They find out uh, the bodies that were there and how, how many there was. Um, and a kind of curious finding is that they find children alongside the, uh, the adults buried in these uh, passage graves, which then tells you that it wasn't just the astronomers there, there was a cultural aspect to it. Perhaps people died younger back then, I don't know. They often say that... Uh, the people buried at the passage graves didn't have a life expectancy more than 30 years which i'm not too sure about um but i mean that doesn't that doesn't make a lot of sense because t- and they say 30 tops so it could be 25 so if the life expectancy is 25 years they reckon newgrange took at least 50 years to build so that's three generations just to build one monument you know so the mind the mind boggles at this point then yeah once you get into it
1: And I suppose another boggling factor is the number of these all over, well, not just all over Ireland, but all over Europe and the world. Um, I mean, there's obviously within the cultures that existed, and we will realize there was, I suppose, a great diversions of of cultures. And because of the limitations with travel um, thousands and thousands of years ago, people wouldn't necessarily have been in contact. For example, with um, people in Portugal wouldn't necessarily have been in constant contact with people in Ireland, or that's how... I suppose, the conventional wisdom goes.
2: Yet. That's what I wondered, John. I, I do wonder that because... Uh, and that's a very good point, because I do get into that at the end of the book. Of, I, I I didn't want to leave the, leave the reader unhinged totally as to, uh, you know, just give them all the data and then let them make their own mind up. I did speculate a little bit who the builders were and uh, and a few conclusions from what accepted data is. So I... Yeah, was there some what they call rudimentary contacts? I'm not too sure. Um, I mean, if you go into the Egyptian civilization, they have cocaine and tobacco in the hair samples on some of the mummies. So they talk about the way the Egyptologists get around that. They call it rudimentary contact with the New World over in South America.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so yeah, there's was there an ancient uh, maritime culture circumnavigating the world? I don't know. There's evidence to suggest the Phoenicians were travelling to South America, or at least to uh, um, the Bahamas region. Um, so I'm not too sure. Uh, what I do know is that a maritime culture did build these passage graves because they're all along the west coast of Europe, uh, southwestern Portugal, uh, northwestern Spain, uh, Brittany uh, in the Karnak region, uh, Holland, Denmark, some in Sweden, but they're pretty ruinous now. Not much left. Uh, the north, uh, east, and northwest of Scotland, and um, the northeast and northwest of Ireland. So, you know, if you look at a map and the topography of where these places were built, uh, they're all coastal regions. Um, again, you have the same unified concept of the passage grave, which is basically the earth and rock mound, the curbstones, large megalithic blocks. Um, all got a, some sort of an equinox or solstice alignment, some slightly individualistic styles but um, you do also have strange links that doesn't explain it and what I mean, I'll give you an example, you have in uh, in the Alcalar cemetery complex, the passage graves there have uh, some art that has survived and what it's called chevron art and um, it basically looks like uh chevron on their pottery and it's got links to the passage graves in uh, Scotland so you have at the two ends of the megalithic region where these are these are situated um, a, a very strong common link but in between you don't you seem to have commonalities and links between two ends of the of Western Europe. Um, but that doesn't doesn't make sense. You would think there would be a common link between the two closest regions, like maybe Ireland and Scotland, or yeah. uh, Holland and Denmark. And then you have it's like it's like the civilization that built this. I kind of describe it as if let's say a civilization was from uh, they were refugees on a boat and they all hit lands the western Atlantic seaboard. They just started their civilization up again in pockets, and that's what it looks like that pockets pocked up here. Some of them, I reckon some of them had artisans in the boats. Some of them had engineers. Some of them had astronomers. Some of them had missions, But like there wasn't an even distribution of, of all these specific trades in each boat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's that's the only way that I can explain it. It's like, uh, it's, a, it's a theory that I have. It's the refugee by boats theory. But, um... And where do you think they might have come from, James? Um, yeah, it's... That's a tough one. It's a tough one. Because we know that, uh... There's megalithic monuments, not specifically passage graves uh, around the Mediterranean Basin as well. You've got Malta, you've got massive megalithic complexes over there. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, well, it, the thing is, it doesn't seem to have started in one region uh, and spread to another. It seems to have started in all these regions at the same time, all around 3200 BC, which then begs the question, uh <laughs> If you, if you carbon date some of the places uh they're all within the same region of time what you don't get is uh alcalar complex in portugal older than scotland or scotland older than alcalar or anything in between so there doesn't seem to be one place that's older than another um they were all within a, a couple of hundred years of uh of construction so again that fits with the refugee by both theory and it's another reason why you kind of you kind of think that because it's the only thing that really makes sense. Um, if you go to the history of North, um, which they'll tell you on the tour, that the Celts, uh, would date back to 1500 BC and they inhabited, uh, North passage grave. Okay. And, uh, they would have, uh, wrote in their annals, uh, their, their later mythologies and histories, uh, if you want to call it that, that, uh, the people who built the passage graves, not particularly passage graves, they, they actually refer to the megalithic civilization or the, the ones that built with the large stones, or, that they actually came from the Western seas, which would mean the Atlantic. Um, but again, we don't know what's out there. I mean, there is no, there is no, uh, there is no uh, landmass out there except it's American life. So whether there's a sunken island out there, there's legends of sunken la- landmasses um I did mention that in the book as well, because there is one off the coast of Cork. I don't know if you're actually aware of this. I am, like- but tell, tell the listeners about this. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And I'm glad you know about it, then because uh, it's uh, it's called Porcupine Bank uh, because it's a sand bank. When you take the cross, prof- cross profile of it, it looks like a porcupine's back. Yeah. So this sand bank is about how low it is. I'm not quite sure from, this, from the sea level now. Um, but at one point it was above sea level. Um There's an author called Graham Hancock. He's gone into uh, ancient maps and stuff. And uh, something I like to read about is ancient histories as well, historical mysteries. And he points out that there's older source maps that show a little island off the coast of southwest of Ireland, about 100 miles from Cork, I think it is, or 100 miles from Kerry. Are we talking about Uh, Brazil here? Yeah, how Brazil is called on the maps. Um, And it's quite fitting that there's a sandbank just underneath... Uh, where High Brazil is shown on the map now, there's been expeditions sent to, to go and discover High Brazil from uh, Bristol in the 1800s. Now, of course, High Brazil is long gone, like, but uh, they didn't know that then. But it's always been there as a, a, a in in uh, mythology that there's a sunken landmass there. So it's, the idea is not coming from nowhere, and it's but not
1: disappearing either, because a lot of people would I suppose refer to it as the Second Atlantis, and we know the Atlantis myths and legends haven't gone away. And this seems to be the same, although it's very, it's not widely spread or widely known at all in Ireland.
2: No, it's not. Um, it's something I love to talk about. It's not something I wanted to go into in the book because I wanted to keep it as a, a kind of an, a main, well, a, a kind of an a- academic and a thorough research project that, uh, to bring the astronomy to light. But, uh, I did speculate a little bit at the end and I did throw it out there because I say I didn't want to unhinge the reader as to what this is all about. But, uh, Everybody wants to know. Then, well, who who are these guys? Who built it? Yeah. So uh, that's why I did go into that at the end of the book. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite fitting that the uh, the Celts, like when and, and their uh, their mythologies or histories, which you want to call it. Um, it's up to yourself. But uh, it's quite fitting that they said the Western Seas, and it's quite fitting that there's there's this legend of a, a sunken landmass, and that there's. Uh, a little sunken island there ge- geographically shown where high brazil is shown on maps there's uh there's actually two or three maps i might just put that up on the web page uh john yes yeah. as a yeah i should really have done that like uh i'm gonna i'm gonna i i, I update the web page quite regularly uh i'm trying to it's it's in its infancy at the moment i shouldn't really give it the web page it's new com. um and I I try to give a lot of articles and a lot of uh, diagrams of what I'm actually talking about in the book as extra stuff for the reader. I've got a I've got a couple of research papers from uh, a scientist in Portugal on in the document sections showing what I'm talking about as well. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I I often wonder: is there a, a sunken landmass? Is it Atlantis? I mean, if you read the uh, if you read some of the mythologies of Ireland and. Uh, what the Celts say, I mean, it's like science fiction, modern science fiction.
1: Mm-hmm, that's
2: right. I mean, the, uh, the Fairbog and the Formorians, and the, I mean, it's, it's, it's astronomical what they're talking about. Mark. I mean, they're talking about force fields and people circling the force field, trying to break in. And when I mean, you, you think a modern science fiction writer, wrote it Mark, you know, um, it's incredible.
1: And I think there's a tendency by a lot of people, and I would certainly have been guilty of this in the past, um, to just dismiss myths and legends as exactly that and to assume that they're fairy stories but um I, I disagree with that personally maybe you can give me your view on it because i don't I'm think these myths myself,
2: John, and up to up until i was in my mid-20s I, I would like uh i'm very much black or white guy you know, and that's the engineer in the science yeah um, you know I, I guess like i mean the first time i ever remember my uh, attention being captivated By knowledge and history, I was reading, it must have been about 10. I read a lot more, and I remember I can't remember where I was reading about it, uh, but it was about the uh, lost city of Vilcamumba, Machu Picchu in uh, Peru. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at this in the book, and it was probably a little encyclopedia or something. And uh, I remember looking at this ancient lost city and was like totally flabbergasted how this could be, uh, how this place could be lost. And you know, I'd often read about ancient civilizations for that reason how did the greatness of ancient egypt and how this was all lost again i'm like how did this place fall apart how did this go to disarray and then the romans the greeks and all the great civilizations and how they fought rose, and fall and uh you know you've got mythologies that go with that and and folklore and stuff and there may uh, there may very well be a core of truth in that but i had always dismissed it i just wanted the hard fact i wanted the ancient history I wanted to know, you know, how they built the monuments. I didn't want to go into that mythology or, or folklore that that would be associated with it. Um, and and uh, here's here's one for you. I've actually come back full circle because uh, in the book I talk about uh, a link to Dogon symbology and totally off the subject of astronomy. I found a link with a uh, uh, to the dogon tribe in west africa and some of their symbology and uh, yeah. there are just five points of commonality that really beg answers and uh well tell I us a little
1: it'd... bit about that let's talk about the dogon first and who they are who they were and uh how the link comes in with newgrange and the dogon tribe
2: yeah um Okay right well, I'll expand on that a little the dogon are a, are a very fascinating tribe uh, they're they're off the charts in terms of uh, of tribes in africa i mean they have uh, astronomical knowledge of the sirius star system uh, they have refused to be uh, influenced by outside cultures um, they have tried to convert them to uh, different religions to to change their religion and they just refuse they actually are believed to have marched out of egypt uh with ancient science and knowledge uh, because they didn't want to be uh, uh, influenced um, uh, from the change of regime there and so they were presumed to have been there was, there's books being wrote by Lars Grant and, and Robert Temple about this
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they're believed to have marched across out of Egypt across the top of North Africa um, and then around the, the west coast of Africa to their present uh, resting place in Mali. Um, now, they uh they have no uh modern tools they collect pigeon dung for uh fertilizer and, and stuff like i mean they're quite uh they're quite nomadic tribe like but they they have this uh dance and culture and science knowledge and that's just so out there and just different and it's crazy like um so yeah they they have this uh oral history that they teach to each other um And two French anthropologists went there in the 1930s um, to research them. They lived with them and they were the first people, the Westerners, to be uh, accepted in and and taught their culture. Um, Of course, they did it from an anthropological uh, perspective. They didn't uh, judge what they were being told. They just just documented everything. And... uh, um, for a long time it was in French, they, it hadn't been translated their work into English and it was the works of Robert Temple that I mentioned, The Serious Mystery, um,
1: yeah.
2: that he'd, he'd kind of opened the lid on it and, uh, you know, they uh, they have a lot of symbology and, and, and diagrams and uh, symbols that they use. One is the spiral, which is uh, common at Newgrange. Um, another one is a raid disc, it's uh, on my webpage, I have a little article on that. Um, It's basically a circle with uh, several little rays out of it. They call them uh, sun wheels. They're basically to represent the sun. And it's quite fitting that in Lock Crew and uh, Doth, these sun wheels um, are actually the exact same as what the Dogon use. And also they have the the spiral, which is what the Dogon use as well. But the sun wheel uh, represents the... Heliacal rising of a star or a constellation in the Dogon and that's exactly what it represents at those passage grave as well So not only are they using the same symbol, but they're using the same symbol to describe the same thing Which is just totally uncanny now next question after that is um, What what's the connection uh, did they build I'm not suggesting for the minute they built it but uh, There seems to be a common thread of influence or, or thread of knowledge there and um, how that's come about, I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, because
1: I suppose the great anomaly with the Dogon is that the information that they have is impossible for us to obtain without using modern telescopes, yet these guys have had it going back generations and generations.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they say that, the, that Sirius is actually a, a triple star system, uh, and it's, also, it's often purported to be a binary star system, but it's actually a triple star system. Um Sirius is a it's very close to us actually. It's quite one it's, I think it's the fifth closest star to uh, Earth. I think Alpha Centauri is the closest one, but Sirius is quite close to us as well. Um and our whole myth and folklore is about the star Sirius. Um and of course it was to the ancient Egyptians as well. There's another commonality and link there. I mean uh, I I get into that in the Newgrange Sirius mystery, that I believe that Newgrange in the epoch of three thousand two hundred BC was almost aligned to the star Sirius. And in 3000 BC, Sirius rises on the horizon at the same point as the sun. Um, and therefore, Sirius by default would automatically uh, light the inner chamber up just like the sun would. Um, and that's not an abstract idea, John. Uh, the ancient Egyptians did that. They had the temple of Dendera lit up at night time with the star Sirius. It would shine down the chambers. Um, And as the effective procession uh, developed over years, they would actually rip down temples and rebuild them in Egypt to realign them to the star Sirius. So this uh, worship of Sirius is, across a lot of ancient cultures like, and I just found another link with it um, at Newgrange, which is why I've titled the book The Newgrange Sirius Mystery. It's it's where my research led me to. um, It's one such theory of about six at the end of the book. so yeah I mean I didn't concentrate too much on the Dogon symbology but I, I really did think it was worthy of a link uh, mention of the link to it like because not people want to touch it and it's not mainstream I, I will agree yeah. but it's there nonetheless and it does need answering. Um, there's another guy called Philip Coppens. Uh, he's an author researcher as well and He's talked about the ancient Greeks talking about it. This this is the myth lore that I've come back back to uh, just on a different note. Um, He's wrote about the Greeks talking about the temple called Hyperborea, the Hyperborean temple of the north. And uh, it's uh, most likely candidate for that temple is actually Kalanish Stone Circle. And there's a couple of reasons for that because there's three points of criteria that the Greeks talked about. They said that, the temple was aligned to the Pleiades as it's set in the west, and it only happens at that latitude where Kalanish is at. Yeah. So there's three definite points, and there is no other thing into the north that that temple could be. Um, and they speak about legends of a black race of people. I hope I'm completely correct saying that, um, that a black race of people built the temple of Hyperborea, mm-hmm. um, which is, if that is Kalanish Stone Circle, then there possibly was a black race of people um, building megalithic monuments. And again, they were supposed to have come by boat to build the temple. They actually shipped the stones from another place, especially to build Kalanish Stone Circle. At least that's the history, stroke, mythology, folklore of uh, Kalanish. So, yeah, I just find that very interesting that that's another uh, point of uh, research that has kind of popped up that might explain the Dogon symbology. I mean, if there's... If there's a, t- a transfer of knowledge, quite possibly. Uh, I, don't, I, th- I think our knowledge of the past is murky at the best. I don't think it's as clean cut as we like to think. Um, you know, if you take uh, Alcalar a megalithic complex in southern Portugal, it's quite close to uh, North Africa, obviously, across the Straits of the World, if you want to call it that. And that's where the Dogon marched. So if there's a maritime culture coming past North Africa at the same time as the Dogon, you know, there's there's talk of megaliths and stone circles in North Africa as well. Not something I've actually gone into and in researched. I just this loosely documented. That it's a hard area to get into and in research by any means at the moment. So, um, so yeah, they were in close proximity to the Dogon in in Portugal building passage graves. So there's another point of commonality that they could have actually uh, transferred their knowledge. So I don't feel the need to say that the Dogon built passage graves in Ireland. I personally I don't think so. Yeah, I do think. Uh, the maritime culture had some links with the Dogon, or are, are the same teachers. I should say that the uh, the Dogon also worship uh, the Pleiades, or they have knowledge of the Pleiades system. Uh, they bring it into their folklore as well, and that's what Doth is aligned to, the Pleiades constellation. So, yeah, it seems quite muddled and mixed up, and... Uh, it's quite strange and fascinating to be, to be jumping into a subject on top of a subject, because that's really what's happened. I mean, if you, yeah. if, if you, if you can raise your passage grade of cosmology and get, get in there and see what exactly happened at these monuments, you get led into another field of research and you go, oh, right. This isn't what we're taught in school this isn't we're just taught that these megalithic civilizations just appeared and it was a megalithic civilization and that's it and don't ask any more questions so
1: well that's exactly it and i suppose the more questions we ask the more we are led to and the more answers we seek and you you mentioned philip coppins and he wrote a book which i suppose for many people when it comes to this subject is the elephant in the room his book is the ancient alien question and the link there i suppose with the dogon tribe is their claim that the sacred knowledge that they have was given to them by, and this is going to seem out there for a lot of people, but was given to them by a race of godlike extraterrestrials, if you want to call them that, who actually came from the Sirius system. Where do you stand on this ancient alien question, James?
2: Again, I do actually know that, uh, I do know, I actually don't, uh, I'm friends with Philip, but I actually never read Philip uh, on Facebook, but I've never actually read any of Philip's work, I have to say. I do go onto his website sometimes, because he writes very interesting, thorough, articles on his website uh which is where I came across that kalanish uh uh hyperborean article um and he's a great source of information as well. But uh yeah I mean all around the world there's talk that Sirius and uh constant serious and the Pleiades uh in, in folklore are, are, are heavily linked with uh extraterrestrial godlike beings coming here and giving us knowledge like could well be. I don't feel the need to go there. Okay um just in terms of uh, the book, the research, I'm trying to get people raised up and understand that, first and foremost, there's a passage grade cosmology. But yeah, I'm certainly aware of all that uh, and I think that's totally fascinating too. I think, I think it will be about 20 years, John, before we can actually be able to talk about that in, in about mainstream uh, academic circles. like, And it won't yeah. be a taboo subject anymore because it is a taboo subject at the moment. Um, certainly with the Dogon, because it's out there a like, lot.
1: Very much so. And it's something that any time the question is raised in the mainstream it's shut down
2: instantly. It's a dirty subject. Nobody wants to touch it in mainstream. They go, Oh, get rid of that. Well that's 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 E.T. talk like, you know. And you know, but I mean the thing about the Dogon is uh Robert Temple goes into that and uh he's a very good point. He says we don't know that they didn't have telescopes and I'll tell you why. Um there's evidence of ancient crystals uh being carved to a very high degree of accuracy, Yeah. Um, uh, he goes into that in, I can't remember the name of the book, it could be The Crystal Sun or something, I think, like that, it's the second book that Robert Temple done, and uh, I mean, if you go to the British Museum, they've got one of the crystals, it's called the Ninvalens, it comes from Babylonia, and uh, it's been tidally ground, the crystal, you have to understand, is a very hard, it's, it's only, diamond is only harder than uh, rock crystal, um, silicon dioxide is its name, um, and it's, diamond is the only other hard, harder substance, so you have to cut or grind crystal with either diamond or crystal okay. um, not only that these lenses that have been found all I mean we're talking these lenses going back to 3000 BC so these lenses have been toroidally ground now I should say a toroid is a donut shape yeah So then that makes no sense because the toroid shape would have to be crystal or diamond so if something is toroidally ground, that means the shape that carved it was a donut shape. And to get something a donut shape from crystal is harder to make than the crystal itself. (laughs) So there's there's some sort of 11 of ancient high technology out there and crystal lenses, I mean, there's been hundreds of them found in Egypt, Babylon. Uh, I think even Caesar had a green crystal lens that corrected his uh, myopic eyesight. Um, So yeah, to suggest that they didn't have a telescope, they could well have had a telescope. Uh, whether they would see seriously that, I don't think so. Um, but uh, yeah, there is evidence that, the, that the, there's a lost ancient science out there. Um, and we don't know where it comes from. We really don't, Like,
1: And do you think then there's a, a certain mainstream, or not just mainstream, but a, maybe it's a human trait, but a kind of an arrogance that the human race has when it comes to science and history and that kind of thing, that we always assume at whatever point in time we're at, we always assume that the knowledge we have is... All there is to know out there. I mean, you can go back, I suppose, to Galileo's times or um, the assumption that the world was flat and this kind of thing. I, we're we're kind of like that still to this day, even though we have, I suppose, a higher technological level of understanding than than existed back then.
2: Sure. I think uh, I think the, the the answer to that is twofold. I think you've got first and foremost you've got the Arabs that you talk about, and it's very prominent in Egyptologists and archaeologists. They're very much a closed science. They're very rigid in their thinking. Mm. But uh setting the arrogance aside, there's also a knowledge filtering process and it's it's how we work as a species. Uh I mean we just tend to filter out the information that doesn't fit and the stuff that does fit. I, I do it myself as an engineer and a scientist. I mean you look first for the points of commonality and that's what I've done in the book even you look at the stuff that fits first and you try and compile a picture to understand the fundamental grasp of something and stuff that's anomalous and doesn't fit just naturally gets put on the shelf. Um, so it's almost
1: or, like if someone comes up with a theory, they will only look at the information that fits that theory and discount anything else.
2: Exactly. And I, I say that's a natural human trait that we have. Now, does not mean that it's right? And it doesn't mean that we still can't look at uh, anomalous evidence. But uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of anomalous evidence around the world and it's indicative of something else. It's indicative of a different history that we actually have.
0: Mm.
2: Um, and that's again uh, something I love about historical mysteries. That like uh, I, I do go into uh, for the magazine I used to write for. I used to go into the the origins of metallurgy, for example, and um, the origins of astronomy, and you know, the origins of the megaliths. And I mean, the origin of metallurgy alone is just totally phenomenal because it shouldn't exist. Um, there's evidence that they knew how to make. Uh, for example, bronze, which is the mixture of copper and tin, as uh, an alloy. Before they knew how to make uh, ores, or uh, uh, just to just to sample one ore and make one metal out of it, they seem to know the, the alloying process first. Which doesn't um, seem to make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. And 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 I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a in what's the name of it? Metzamore. I think it's in there. Uh, is it an Armenia or Turkey? I can't remember. It's that long ago since I wrote about this. There's a, uh, mega, a megalithic ancient site beside a metallurgical complex called Metsamor. And uh, there's evidence of metallurgy going back down there to like something thousands of years BC. And uh, it seems that they were putting tin on the shelf that they knew it would be able to be alloyed with something at a later date. Um and if you look up on the dictionaries or encyclopedias of how they discovered metallurgy, you'll be told that they chucked a piece of ore into a campfire and it melted and they seen the metal pour out and then they knew how to make a metal. And that's just a lot of hogwash because <laughs> the temperature that you need to make even the, the any me, any ore um melts and, the, and for the metal to run out is serious-like. I mean yeah. you'd have to really it, it, there seems to be no natural way to discover metallurgy, um, and we t- i mean, if you if you go back to the Sumerian civilization, they were told they were given uh, the knowledge of metallurgy from uh, another race of people that came from the north. Um, there's other people think that they're again godlike beings and uh, Anunnaki and and whatever, but uh, I don't feel the need to go there either. I mean, there's there's a hundred things they were given. They were given printing. They were given. Metallurgy, they were given astronomy, they were given governments, they were given school systems, they were given uh, printing, carving. 100 of the first of mankind was given to uh, the Sumerian culture. They had the Baghdad battery yeah. uh, and they still reckon that could be 2000 BC, maybe more. Um, and for, for those that don't know, it's essentially a, a fully functioning battery that is that it's, old. It's, it's, yeah, they didn't even know what it was until the 1930s. I mean, they sat in they sat in museums, like, uh, and they are uh, just potato or uh, potato starch or grapefruit juice, or it, as as the as- acid to make the battery work. And again, of course, they found no wires with it, so they assumed that it was uh, a curiosity to them, and that's how they explain it away. Yeah, but again, the Sumerian culture, again, the crystal lenses are there as well, and I mean, the crystal lenses could be one of the things that really point out. Uh, and uh, evidence of a lost technologically advanced civilization. Now, of course, our idea of a technological advanced civilization in our modern world is laptops, TVs, electronics-based uh, industry. Um, but if you look at the amount of people that use the technology, they're not very smart people. And I don't mean that in any disparaging term. Like I mean, you don't have to be an electronics engineer to, under- to watch a telly. Now, yeah? Yeah. Don't yeah. even know how it was made or how it was built. Most people don't even know um The principles behind how it works. They just know that it works and they can use it. Um, so that's our idea of a technology now. But technology in 3000 BC, I think, was astronomy, uh, observation astronomy, moving large stones, large distances. How they did that, don't quite know. I mean, if you go to ancient Egypt, they were able to lift 200 ton stones. If you, set, set aside the Giza pyramids for the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the bottom of the Giza pyramids, there's the Sphinx Valley Temple, and they have something like 200 tonne ton stones manoeuvred into a tight corner. Now, we can lift a 200 tonne stone today with several cranes, but we couldn't put them into a tight corner. We, uh, we couldn't get the crane out or into a in tight corner to do it. It has to be beside the stone that you're lifting. We can only get it up and down. Right? And
1: indeed, so, experiments have been run in the last number of years, I think, by teams of Japanese engineers most specifically spring to mind. Where they tried to actually recreate some of what was done and they simply
2: that's, couldn't do it with today's technology that's quite right the japanese seem to love having a little go at things but they, <laughs> they that was a total failure wasn't it i do remember that That was a documentary for either discovery of national geographic I that's right I, I think national geographic i remember seeing it and small-scale uh, pyramid and it was a shambles what they did like they couldn't even do a small-scale model of it with all the modern equipment of today so yeah i mean technology back then i mean they may have a different intuit, intuition and different ways of doing things i mean um there's other guys that reckon uh, that the, the celtic pagan cross is actually uh, adapted you know the are it's the circle with the with the cross in the middle of it yeah uh, that uh, it was actually modeled on a device that was used to measure the angle b- um, between Venus and give us what's called a megalithic yard. I think Adrian Knight goes into that in his book, Civilization One. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is, all these megalithic sites have a unit of measurements, just like the period of the Giza have the cubits uh, uh, as their unit of measurement. So do the megalithic civilization. Uh, is what's called a megalithic yard. And, uh, of course... Nobody had a measuring stick going around all these different places giving them, well, do you want to use my measuring stick today and give needs yeah. to be used yeah. the same measurement as me? It, it didn't work like that. These, if they had contact it was rudimentary and, and, and it wasn't much so, did everybody leave with the same measuring stick? Probably not. So what they used was their knowledge. And if you calculate the transition of Venus and you measure the angle to the sky and use this pendulum, uh, it's quite a complex thing to explain. This, uh, cross inside a circle was a swinging pendulum and it gave you what's a unit of measurement. If you did it all right on the same day, when you observed Venus, you would have uh, a measurement called the, uh, what's known as the megalithic yard. And that's how they transferred the measurement. They just had different ways of doing things, John. Yeah. Yeah. Different ways of transferring knowledge and they used what they had. They didn't need material based society. I mean, they used their, their head and they used a very clever acumen to, uh, to transfer their knowledge and to, to not indulge in a material science. Maybe that wasn't their intention. Maybe they just use different parts of their brain. Who knows, like, you know?
1: And it's utterly fascinating. And I suppose we've spoken a lot about the sun and the stars. And you mentioned the moon um, at one point. And there's, there's something I wanted to bring up with specific regard to Newgrange. Sure. And there are, I suppose, some theories that Newgrange has a lunar function as well. And it can even go back, if you look at, I suppose, the Irish language or Gaelic, um, a a derivative of Bruna Buena, which is the Irish for Newgrange, can actually mean white cow. Um, And it's it's, it's been pointed out by some people, I think, that the period of gestation of a cow is equivalent to nine and a half um, lunar months. And Newgrange ties in in some way, so the theory or some of the theories go, that there is a lunar function can you shed some light on that because i'm quite interested in that
2: yeah i have read into that and it's it's uh it's quite a, it's quite a beautiful fitting theory um yeah i i i mean there's there's a lot of things about new grains that i haven't talked about in particular i what i've concentrated on is the astronomy but yes there's like i mean there's other people talk about the the phallic symbols that are at notes with the uh the what they call this—the tall, thin ridge stone, and then the squatter stone for the male and female. Yeah. And they also talk about Newgrange being in the shape of a womb. It's like a kidney-shaped mound, and that the sun penetrating is like a sexual function to it. Um, that the that the uh the sun being penetrating into the womb is what the sh- if you look as an an aerial plan of Newgrange. Um, it's got this sexual function to it, and it's it's so supposedly a, a, a womb, and the beam of sunlight would be the penetration into the womb. So yeah, there's these weird little uh, anecdotal uh, things to go alongside the uh, New I'm I'm open to them, open to them all. I think yeah, there's some there's some good research into these things. I also also think that uh, the uh, the River Boyne was uh, the Milky Way. Which would also tie in close with the cow as well, that the white cow. Uh, I think there's a guy, Anthony Murphy, does talk about that. Well, that
1: that's very interesting that you bring up the word womb as well, because um, we, as we said, bruna buinia, yes, which is the the old Gaelic. I know brew b r u g h is a derivative of brew b r u fodder which is the yes. Irish for womb.
2: Yes. And that, yes, that's uh, fascinating uh, to for, me. For that reason, yeah. I mean. Uh, that's that's something that again just gets relegated to discussions outside the archaeology and you know I just think archaeology has a tight grip on that place and uh, you know just seem to have a it's like a tight leash they keep on it and all other ideas are on hold and not uh, not allowed to be mentioned I mean there's so many books right about Newgrange but you just don't read this in very many books it's alternative historians or mythologists that they get to mention it in obscure passages alongside their other work you know
1: yeah so but, uh, for for somebody who might read your book James and yeah. they're thinking about going to New Grange whether they've been there before or, or to any other passage grave indeed whether they've been there before or haven't yeah what should people look out for or what kind of uh what kind of an attitude should they have going in because we've already mentioned i suppose the mainstream or the dogmatic historical view that exists and that you will hear from guides etc etc that's not to demean them in any way but yeah. we know there is more and you speak about so much more in your book so what should people bear in mind if they're going to visit one of the passage graves
2: i like that that's good okay first and foremost don't get bamboozled by what new grange looks like on the horizon understand that it's reconstructed first and foremost yeah, yeah. Um, but understand that as part of a larger complex. Uh, if you look down towards the River Boyne, you'll see another baby passage grave, which you're not allowed to go to. But it's there. Um, when you go to North, look back at Newgrange and understand North and its little setting, and understand that this whole thing has a collective function. Try and get that into the mindset. Um, have a good walk around and have a good look at the rock art, because everybody's got great ideas. I mean. The, it takes so many. I mean, there's not one person has gone around Newgrange and knows for that matter and looked at all the rock art and deciphered it. I mean, it's come from so many different people, and each person is entitled to their viewpoint. That's great, but get it out there. If you got something, talk about it. Um, and I mean, everybody that everybody that uh, has their own theory on what the what the rock art means like, I mean, it might just spark off an idea in somebody's head and it might just, I mean, we are raising our, our awareness of Newgrange and the rock art there. There is also something else I should mention and to look out for. There is art there that isn't astronomically uh, associated and uh, it's indicative of alter- 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 alternative uh, states of consciousness. Um, when you go into a different state of consciousness, either through, but some people thought maybe they were taking magic mushrooms or they were doing uh, starvation. Uh, they were chanting rhythm and dance. There's a very way, various, many, various ways you can go into uh, alternative states of consciousness. Mm. Uh, but uh, regardless of how the method was achieved, uh, when you do go into a different state of consciousness, you have a thing called an emtoptic phenomenon. Uh, basically, you'll see images on your eyelids uh, like the shape of a letter U, uh squiggles uh chevrons dots um and there's a lot of rock art around the world that's indicative of the topic phenomenon especially the Lascaux uh, uh cave art in france um and it's a whole different subject um but there is art there and i think it's something i would love to go into one day and and do another uh do another bit of research on maybe write another book but uh for the time being my hands are full but uh just if you, if you go and look at the art, understand that there's there's these other symbology there that represents different states of consciousness. Um, I'm trying to think of what. There's something like 10 different, uh, 10 different images that are indicative. So there's 10 points of reference for uh, ASEs, they're called alternative states of consciousness. So th- that's something probably that you wouldn't know to look out for. I think you do mention it. It depends on the tour guide that you get there, John, that yeah. would actually mention that. Cause I've gone, uh, I think maybe Newgrange quite possibly, fifteen, twenty times, just right, over okay. the years. Um, and every time I go, I like, I get a different story. I get a different, <laughs> I get a different regime. Of what's going on, like, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it, I, I understand you get different people, and they've got. I, I think like the second last time I've gone now, I did get a good guide, and he was like, uh, "It was, it was, he hadn't a lot of people there that day, and." Uh, he was he was getting he was quite excited and he was throwing stuff out there, you know. You could tell he was just uh he was just getting excited about the whole alternative thing as well. So yeah, you do it depends on the guide you get that day as well, that would give you different knowledge and uh, you know, they do churn out a different amount of guides. I mean they constantly have guides doing the doing the I don't know whether they're volunteers or whether they work there, but uh there's a high turnover of uh guides at Newgrange. So you'll get a different story about them each time you go but Yeah, it's quite interesting to look at um, and and go to. But yeah, definitely go to the other two as well. uh, Noth and Doth. Don't just treat Newgrange as its own. I mean, you actually get offered the choice when you go into Newgrange as well, which is do you want to see Noth as well or do you just want to do the Newgrange one? Newgrange, of course, is open 12 months of the year and Noth is only open six months of the year. Um, I think it's it's still closed for archaeology. Um, There's so much going on at at Noth that uh, they have to close it and maintain some of it uh those six months of the year so if you can get to see no do that as well um, and you, and you, you
1: mentioned some other sites as well such as carrokeel and uh crew and uh, yeah Hill. i
2: mean lock crew we've just had an equinox there at lock crew and uh i should actually talk about uh crew as well lock, lock crew seems to show an awful lot of evidence for uh, calendar building and, and mapping the solar year and uh the most basic breakdown of the solar year is the four points that's the summer solstice then the autumn equinox then the winter solstice then the spring equinox and back again yeah mm. and if you split those four quarters of the year into again you'll get another four days and they're called the cross quarter days naturally yeah so if you picture a circle with four quadrants you just split it up again into more quadrants and uh, those days that they occur on uh are what's still survive in the pagan calendar close to May Day, uh, guy fawkes night 5th of november uh, in samhain in bulk uh beltane and lunacy is the is the gaelic terms for the the pagans and they, they still survive today to show them cross quarter day. but uh there's two peaks in lock crew and the one that i mentioned currently has the famous equinox sunbeam um but not crew, the other peak you're actually not allowed to go there, but I don't think anybody minds <laughs> if you do walk up. I don't think there's public access there, but there's never anybody around uh, but uh, it's got a it's got the cross quarter day I think the November fifth and February fourth solar alignments uh, it's got a white uh, limestone standing stone inside it's locked up, you can't get inside it uh, but you can you can get look into the fence like and it's it's got something like twenty cairns around it. Um it's quite phenomenal up there. Um so yeah, I mean Loch Crewe, it's it's quite close to Dublin, so it's not that far away from most for a lot of tourists will make it a bit of effort to go there. Carol Keel again, very much off the beaten track. But well, Carol Keel's quite special to me. I think it's I think it's quite a lovely complex to sit there and, and take in. It's a lovely walk up. Um you know, it's quite a different ambiance up there. It's quite a different feel. Um And again, I mean, it's, it's got links to Newgrange and note. I mean, the, the, there's no, I think the only two places to have a light box is Newgrange and G at Right. They call so them Cairns up at, uh, at Carrowkeel, but they're passage graves. They're very short passages, but they're passage graves. And
1: of course, in Carrowkeel, you can see the kind of uh, pyramidic shape that you had mentioned yeah, earlier
2: Pointy, uh, the standard point of the Carn. Uh, I think Carn actually means hill in our in Gaelic. Is that correct? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think it's uh in Lochcrew, it the there the, the mountains are called Carnbane East and Carnbane West, and Carnbawn is basically Irish for white hill, and that's probably because they were topped to, what white quartz. Uh, the white hills are the white quartz. Um, so yeah, um, Carol Keels, uh, uh, what a beautiful setting. I mean, uh one of one of them is quite awkward to get to but there's something like 15 uh Karns up there uh and you can usually see one or two cairns from the other cairn. everywhere you look you see a cairn on a peak on the horizon it's crazy like yeah um so yeah it's if if people can get to sligo and go there it's well worth the visit certainly caro keel anyway there's another megalithic complex called caro moore which i haven't got into it's it's actually 20 miles from caro keel but uh I, I've never got into that because they're quite heavily ruined I've tried to just talk to the ones that were in rock art are heavily intact anyway uh, I have been there but I haven't talked about it in the book um so yeah it's uh it's quite a complex ground plan across the whole of Ireland and, and Western Europe as a whole like uh um so yeah it's 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 indicative yeah. of a passage great cosmology as I say in the book so it's it's uh, it's astounding that this whole thing has, has been going on and that's it's not heavily researched, yeah. I personally I don't understand why you wouldn't when they when when they uh when they excavated these in the nineteen sixties and, and got them rebuilt for public viewing, why they didn't bring an astronomer along? If they knew they had like uh, astronomical functions, why didn't they have an astronomer to try and figure out the alignments Though. But like you say, again, there's like, a, like an arrogance there that they, there's somebody else is stepping on their territory, on their, on their academic field of study, yeah? Academia is not a very friendly uh, science sometimes, you know? They, the scientists don't, uh, they're very competitive and they're very uh, aggressive to one another and each other's work. And in the scientific establishment, they, they often ridicule each other's work and, and they, they reckon if they can withstand any ridicule then and, and the theory will last. Then then it's worth it's worth uh, it's worth portraying it as a good theory. Then so it's it's a bit of an aggressive science, lot.
1: Yeah, and we're often, I suppose, in academia de- um, dealing with agendas as well, because you're looking at funding and there's a reliance on universities and that kind of thing as well. So if people step outside of the mainstream, they often become ostracised and they lose their living, which is a big consideration for a lot of people.
2: Yeah. Well, exactly. The, Look at Egyptologists, I mean it's one of the most closed sciences in the world, yeah you have to study at a university and be awarded um, a degree and then you're not allowed to talk about it unless, unless you're not allowed to have your own theory basically yeah
0: yeah,
2: yeah. I mean it's 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 a branch of archaeology and it's quite an ego driven science I I, 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 I I would try not to put down another field of study I really would like I have to say actually Locke crew. There's a, an, uh, an author and uh, archaeologist called Jean McMahon. Um, she's the only person to ever write a book on Loch Crew. When I say book, it's actually uh, 40 pages long, 20 of which are diagrams. And uh, she feels the need to go into mythology in the book, but she also puts down her archaeological slogan in the book that if you can't dig up the past, you can't know about the past. And that's just not true. It's just not true because we have a new science of astronomy to actually look into ancient monuments all around the world. Yeah. It seems only natural. If the guys used astronomy in their monuments, it seems natural to look at it with the eyes of astronomy. And if you can find out, I mean, if you can put a compass in there, you can look at what these things were aligned to. And you can use modern software to go and wind the skies back. And you know what these guys were looking at. And, you, and sometimes you have a perfect match. Sometimes you don't even need to wind the skies back. You can, the solstices are still there today yeah yeah I mean it seems only natural to to use another science to try to have a look at appearance of the past. I still think the archaeology is very important yeah. there's the carbon dating, there's the measurements there's the uh, the cultural aspect the looking into was there a farming society there um i mean but you know if there's another science there that sheds light on the subject, indulge in it one but you know there's archaeologists out there saying no. If you, give me the pot shards, give me the stuff that we can dig up and look at you know and that's just that's a bit that's a bit of a clo- that's closing off cl- that's closing off doors and not looking inside if you ask me i agree you
1: know? and let's face it everything needs a point of reference and the point of reference for ancient cultures was up there in the sky um so it, it makes perfect sense for us to do the same and to use that point of reference i suppose the old maxim comes to mind as above so below and then uh, then do your, up, yes. do your work below after you have examined what's above us.
2: Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's another thing that's really popped up I should bring up since we're talking about other historical histories. Have you ever heard of Gebekli Tepi? I have indeed, yeah. In Turkey. Yeah, I think that's really a hot little toddy at the moment for research. I mean... It's really getting talked about now and coming into the limelight. I mean, it's been discovered since the early nineties, but uh,
1: Tell us a little I, bit about it, James, because we haven't discussed that yet on this show with anybody.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean it's doing it's doing a lot of, a lot for the for ancient megaliths and it's doing a lot for ancient astronomy because there's evidence it's been aligned to the Cygnus constellation. there uh, I also go into that in the book of the Fornox Monument in in Knoll. It's on the border of Dublin and Mead. It's got an uh, alignment to the Cygnus constellation and the uh, Callanish Stone Circle's also aligned to the Cygnus constellation, so Megalithic monuments around the world seem to be obsessed with the Cygnus constellation as well. But uh, Gobekli Tepe is in uh, Turkey. I think the nearest town would be San Lurfe. Um, but what's so special about that place is uh, it's dating to at least 8,000 BC, maybe 10,000 BC. And we have no idea. I mean, it's, it's been carbon dated to that, much, Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's mainstream accepted as that's the day that was built. And we have no idea what was going on it's there's evidence that it's actually been intentionally buried to cover it over to preserve it i mean there's something like if you picture like uh, stonehenge there's like stone circles there and they're they've got pillars that are t-shaped and they've got weird strange animals and figures carved onto them uh and the and the experts carving that off the figurines i think there's like foxes and birds and boars and stuff like all our animals and weird human faces and i mean it's it's there was a national geographic article just quite recently on it um so yeah it's it's coming into mainstream and it's accepted and uh it's really indicative of an ancient lost civilization because there there shouldn't be a civilization back then. there as far as uh, mainstream archaeology is is, is telling us like, well that's uh, it
1: and that's something that really interests me because it's it's something that can't be ignored because it is there Yet it's very, very inconvenient to mainstream archaeology as we have, I suppose, led to been led to believe the truth is up to now. So how they're dealing with that and how they're kind of skirting around the subject so far is fascinating. And it's something that can't be ignored because it's there.
2: Not anymore, no. And that's that's the beauty of Quebecly Tepe because it stands there begging answers like, come figure me out, because there's something like only 4% of the whole site has been uncovered so far. I mean, it's going to take them years, John, just yeah. years yeah. upon years to the scale of the comics, there's at least 20 of these uh, spiral circles. Uh, and, uh, I mean, they, they literally re-backfilled the whole mountain in to cover this thing and protect it. Again, personally, I think it's in the time of the ancient Great Floods, and we know that the Great Flood happened in 10,000 BC because of the glacial uh, information that we now have of that epoch. Um, I don't know if you read the work of Graham Hancock. or I, I do, Robert in, in Bob, depth, actually, yeah uh do you yeah um i actually i'm actually on the Graham hancock forum at the moment uh um i'm talking to the author of the month there he's a friend of mine um walter cutten and he's got he's he's got a conference in america that he gives the people a lot of platform he's actually asked me to go over for the cpac conference and talk about my book i actually can't make it i would love to go but uh he's got a platform for a lot of these authors to go and talk about this stuff like and uh He's uh, one of the guys he you knows, Robert Schock. You know, it, it, the Gobekli Tepe is helping him out as well because, you know, he, he redated the Sphinx uh, with geological evidence and took a lot of arrows in the back of it. That's that. right, yeah. And, and uh, you know, also Robert Boval and Graham Hancock pointed out procession of the equinoxes with the Great Pyramids uh, and the Giza Orion theory. And that pointed to the epoch 10,500 BC. Uh, Graham Hancock would go into a lot of precession of the equinoxes. He's done great work on it. He would probably be, you know, a mammoth in terms of the precessional research that's been done uh, yeah. around ancient cultures around the world. But, um, you know, they were pointing at 10,500 BC. Uh, Robert Shaw Keane probably pointed to, conservatively, 7,000 BC for the stating of the Sphinx. And, you know, Egyptologists laughed at them. They just turned around and went, what are you talking about? There was no civilization there. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, you give me the pot shards, show me something we can dig up with from that civilization if you can find it. You know, and they tried to really kill them. And look at it, look at them now. They have Quebec They have something there that's highly advanced, moving large multi tongued stones, uh, expert carving, astronomical alignments. Yeah, at a time when we don't know anything about it. Like you know, so there is there is something there like Quebec the Li Tepe. It's very important discovery for the world. It really is not.
1: Like, and it's a real case of watch this space with regard to A, what happens in his on there, and B, how the mainstream yeah. treats it.
2: I mean, I think there's a German guy, uh, I think it's Schmidt is not his name. Uh, Klaus, uh, Klaus
1: Schmidt, I believe.
2: Yeah, he's, uh, he's doing the, heading the research there. And I mean, but he's been going at it since 93, like, you know, so they're literally getting teaspoons to dig the earth away and have a look at it. I mean, and they are doing a sort of job. You have to understand that that's the way archaeology has to process, like, you know. Yeah, um, but in doing it in the method that they do, and that's why I do have a lot of regard for archaeology sometimes, uh, as a science like, there is good science that comes out of it, like, you know, there is a bad attitude comes out of it too. But you know, they have uh, uncovered the strange fact that, uh, by going down layer by layer, that they were able to get a layer of material and prove that it was actually backfilled in about 8000 BC, so they know. That it was in existence for 2000 years and that for some reason they filled it in okay uh, well that's that that doesn't make sense like and that, that's that's more anomalous and, and more stranger than the finding the place itself like in in that epoch you know it's strange enough to find this place at a, at a point in ten thousand bc you know, like and and it's and it's highly advanced uh, technological function i mean robert shock's been there uh, and he thinks that uh these things like there's an acoustic effect off these uh, T-shaped printers. They're like tuning forks almost, like. It's a strange place, like, you know. And yeah. Yeah, watch this space, John. That's definitely it, like.
1: Well, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. And I suppose, speaking of fascinating, your book is out very, very soon. Tell us about how people can get their hands on it and what they need to do.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, hopefully, uh, we're talking the middle of October and it'll be on Amazon UK and Amazon US. Um, and I'll have links to my, uh, website, uh, newgrangecosmology.com. If you want to buy the book there, I can just redirect you there. Um, and I will be doing, uh, signed copies on the website as well. If somebody wants to grab a copy there, um, Excellent. So, yeah.
1: Well, the book is The New Grange Serious Mystery, linking passage grave cosmology with Dogon symbology by EA James Swagger. James, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you on Alchemy Radio today, and I very much look forward to
2: our next chat. Um, what's next for you? Uh, good question. <laughs> That's a good question. I've been thinking that this last week, John. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking of whether I go back to my historical mysteries book that I half finished and jumped and went on a tangent with my megalithic book, but I. I thought there were areas of research, and I don't know which one to do first. Archaeoacoustics is another uh, subject I really like. Um, and that's that these ancient monuments, particularly coming back to Newgrange, uh, Newgrange is situated in the largest natural amphitheater in the world. I don't know if you know that. Um, it's, a, it's a rare little place. I didn't uh, know probably that. why they chose that. It's just sitting in a bowl, basically, in the valley, and it's a natural amphitheater. Um. But yeah, the, the, the megalithic civilization, they talk about them as a sonar culture as well, because there's megaliths in Malta that, you know, they, they have knowledge of acoustics and they built chambers like Newgrange, Lough Crewe, Malta with acoustic effects. And perhaps they were chanting inside the chambers. Who knows? Like, I mean, but there's this new uh, found science of archaeoacoustics, uh, which again is a mongrel science of archaeology and acoustic technology. Mm-hmm. There's evidence, again, Stonehenge has rare acoustic effects. I don't know if you know that or heard about that. I haven't seen so, that. Uh, yeah, there's a guy, work of a guy called Paul Devereaux. Uh, he's done a lot of research around. He's got a, he's, he's in another place as well. I think it was the Epidaurus Theater in uh, Greece and the weird acoustic effects over there. Um, yeah, and he, he's brought some knowledge to light that these were acoustic monuments as well as astronomy. Yeah, uh, I mean, where the stones are actually positioned in uh stonehenge uh if you apply the science of the physics of it that they, they if you stood in the center and or spoke loudly that uh you're you, it actually has an amplifying effect where the the way the sound waves coalesce back with each other and amplify at certain points outside the circle mm-hmm. and he's literally got an omnidirectional speaker you'll know this as a dj uh yeah. He had sound equipment and uh, he sent out pulses of different frequencies uh, in an omnidirectional speaker at the center of Stonehenge and uh, found out that the pulses and sounds got amplified as you got away from the circle at a certain distance, amazing. which is just amazing. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, it's another subject and research I'll, I really want to go into, especially because uh, Newgrange and Locke Crew uh, also have strange acoustic effects and... Uh, Again, that could be indicative of the alternative uh, uh, states of consciousness that I was talking about. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's another area of research I think I'd really get into. There's so much out there, though, John. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the astronomy I'm going to probably put down for a moment. But I do want to also come back and do a more thorough book on past great cosmology because I have some beautiful stuff that I haven't talked about in the book that's outside Ireland. So, yeah. We'll have another chat again sometime soon. We certainly
1: will. And I'll be very much looking forward to it. Once again, the website is newgrangecosmology.com. James Swagger, it's been enlightening speaking to you on Alchemy. Thanks a million for joining me today.
2: My pleasure, John. It's been great. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio.
0: man Who tried to hurt you? He's explaining the way I'm feeling for all the jealousy I caused you. He states the reason why I'm trying to hide. As for all the things you taught me, it sends my future into clearer dimensions.